1: No place to go. Don't act like you're sorry. I know the truth. You can wipe your tears away, but it's your turn to lose. I've been trying hard to follow your plan with a bottle of wine and time on my
0: hands. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. The music you're listening to is The Chain by Akron Canton singer songwriter Ryan Humbert. Ryan's our featured musical artist this week, so stick around till the end of the podcast. We'll play the whole song for you and tell you a little bit more about Ryan, including how to catch his annual holiday concert at the Akron Civic Theater. That must be fun. Yeah. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a cold case to explore tonight. And it's one of Akron's most frustrating and enduring mysteries. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, award winning journalist, Polish Slice, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. We've also got a couple of very special guests with us tonight, Luanne Baird and Jerry Leonard from two families who share the same tragedy. Welcome, Luanne and Jerry. We're so honored to have you with us tonight. Thank you for having us.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Paula tells me that if you're a baby boomer who grew up in the Akron area, the names Baird and Leonard will sound all too familiar.
3: That's right, Steve. Luanne is the sister of Ricky Baird and Jerry is the brother of Mary Leonard. And in 1979, Ricky and Mary, two teenagers from Akron's North Hill neighborhood, disappeared after a date night to a drive-in theater. For years, detectives, private investigators, family, and friends followed leads all over the country, trying to understand where they went. Then in 1985, six years after Mary and Ricky vanished, a utility worker with a backhoe in a remote wooded area of Akron's Merriman Valley would bring that search to an end. But in doing so, they would launch a new search, one for a killer that still escapes justice. Luann and Jerry, next year marks 40 years since Ricky and Mary were murdered. Did you think you would ever reach that milestone and still not have a resolution?
2: No, not at all. Um, There were so many stories over the years and so much conjecture and rumor. And really, I don't think it ever occurred to me that 40 years would go by.
3: Um, You know, before we go any further, I would love to know more about Mary and Ricky. Um, Jerry, Mary is 17 years old, and she's getting ready to start her senior year at North High School. Tell us what she was like.
4: Well, she was, I always said she was an angel. Um, She would do anything for you. Um, I treated, I was the typical little brother, always teasing her, always getting in fights with her. But no matter what. She was always there for me. There was a, one particular time when we were getting ready to change campsites, and she knew that I liked to tease people all the time and didn't get along with the other kids too well. So she wanted to help me change. And I'll never forget the way she, way she was with me. Um, but uh,
3: so she was your older sister. Yeah. By how many years?
4: Um. Three. Three years. I was uh, fourteen, and she was seventeen. We were, she was starting her senior year, going to start her senior year, and I was starting my freshman year there at North High School. And uh, the day she disappeared, she brought home her proofs, her senior proofs, and my mom made her leave them at home that night. She wanted to take them and show them to her friends, and she made her leave them at home, thank God, because we would have never had the
0: pictures. That's the pictures you saw on the paper. It,
3: that's the picture you see on the paper?
0: Yes. Do you have any fond memories of your little brother, big sister relationship? Well, my memories are me teasing my sister all the time.
4: Um, I used to, I had a tape recorder and I had a speaker and I'd stick a speaker in her bedroom. And when she'd get in bed, I'd say, this is God calling
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little brother move right there. <laughs>
4: little did I know, he was called her soon after that. Oh, okay. oh. But there was one time, I hid underneath her bed, and she comes into the room. I was on the, between the, well, the rooms are tiny, so I was stuck between the, the bed and the wall. And she come in and sat down on the bed, and she started saying something about her legs were hurting her. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, my sister's going to be taking her clothes off. And I'm going to be killed. (laughs) So
3: hadn't thought that went through.
4: I popped my head up before she had any chance to do that, and I says, "Oh, they are!" Mom! (laughs) She screamed out, and I knew I was in big trouble. (laughs) But that was those are two of the things I remember doing to her that I was good at. (laughs) Oh, I also remember Mary. There was a pear tree at the back of our yard, but it was our neighbors behind us, and we used to pick pears from that. One time I didn't do it, and she did, and a bunch of other kids in the neighborhood did, she asked me to take the blame, to cover for her. Were you a good brother? I took the blame, I remember that. I remember my brother taking blames for me too. My kids
2: would be like, I'm not doing that for you.
3: Well, um, Luann, tell us, tell us about Ricky. He was 19. He had already graduated from North High School. Right. Help us get to know him.
2: Um, well, I'm the older sister, so he was the typical annoying little brother. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> and I had
2: four little brothers. But um, Ricky liked, he enjoyed winter. And I know that's crazy, but he did. And he wanted, as soon as it snowed, he was outside. He was out there, he was shoveling, he was helping the neighbors. Um, very, a very hands-on type of person. I think if he had lived, he probably would have done some kind of physical job. He liked to be outside, and, and um, you know, we always bought him long underwear for Christmas because he was outside all the time. So it, I, I've always, every time it snows, I think about him.
3: Well, I'll mention that in our audience today, we have Ricky's brothers, um, Bill and Tim, with us also. Hi, Bill. Hi, Tim. And um, Jerry's wife, Connie, and Luann's daughters, Erica and Megan, who are two of a set of triplets. So thanks for being with us here, guys. If if you want to chip in something, just raise your hand and and we'll get you on here. Well, it's our loss that we didn't get to see the people they were going to grow up to be. We were robbed of that on August 24, 1979. So let me start by telling you, our listeners, what we know about that Friday. Couple had a pretty full day. We know Ricky picked up Mary and took her to O'Neill's Department Store in downtown Akron so she could get those proofs of her senior photos. Uh, Then Mary went to work at the Acme Grocery Store back when it was on Cuyahoga Falls Avenue, Uh, She was a cashier there. And they made plans to go out that evening. At this point, they had been dating for about three or four months. So Ricky picks up Mary around 9 p.m., and they head to the old Ascot Drive-In to watch the Amityville Horror. Uh, They meet another couple in a separate car there. They're not there for the whole movie. At some point, they briefly end up in a parking lot at Stonehenge Bowling Alley. The two couples were in their separate cars, and then they parted. And Ricky has Mary home well before her midnight curfew. And we know this because a neighbor sees them sometime after 11 p.m. Frank Ronka hears Mary giggling. He waves to them. They're sitting on Mary's porch on Thayer Street in North Hill. And the neighbor says he also sees Beard's car parked on the street. It's distinctive. It's a white 1972 Chevrolet Impala with a dark blue roof. And then... Ricky and Mary vanish. So, Luann, tell us about the moment that you learned Ricky was nowhere to be found.
2: Well, actually, I I actually worked at Fazio's at that time, and my grandfather came into the store that day and told me, he said, hey, did you know they can't find Rick? And I said, no, but, you know, he got into different things from time to time. He spent the night at someone's house or he had a bad habit of falling asleep at someone's house and not calling anyone.
0: So this has happened where they couldn't find him before?
2: No. just Well, he's
3: 19. He's 19. Okay. So
2: and he's got a car. He's got a car and I, I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't that concerned about it the next morning. Okay.
3: And Jerry, when did you find out that they were having trouble finding Mary?
4: Uh-oh. I had got up a- that Saturday morning, went down to the restroom, went back up to my room, and our telephone rang. It was Mr. Beard calling our house, asking if Mary was home. Well, my dad had answered the phone. He yelled up the stairs to me, "Is Mary in her bedroom?" I says, "No, I think she went to work early this morning because her bed was made," and uh, I never thought anything about it. And then she, and then that's when they found out that's. From what my dad I remember, my dad saying that Mr. Beard got a phone call during the night, and I don't know what the conversation was, and that made him suspicious. That something was wrong. We don't. I don't know what the conversation was. I'll, that's what I recall. That he got a phone call and then called us to see if Mary was home, and that's when everything. When
3: happened. did that phone call? Did it come in like early, like it was, it, it, morning, like a time she would
4: have been at work? After the sun came up. Okay. I just remember it was, the sun was up by wow. that time, and that's when all hell broke loose.
2: Okay. Well, my dad always got up early, and he probably looked out, you know, because we were all older. Well, I didn't live at home anymore then, but, you know, he would look out and see if our cars were there. <laughs> Rick's car wasn't there, so he, I think he, did he send you out? Yeah. He sent my brother Bill out to just drive around his friend's house to see if his car is there. If his car is there, you know, don't worry about it. He must have spent the night somewhere. So at that point, I don't think there was a lot of concern. But then when the police showed up at the door with Rick's wallet is when everything kind of went crazy.
3: Okay, well, that that's, that will bring us to Saturday because right. the police uh, do find Ricky's wallet. Um, Chevrolet Impala, it's on a farm lane at Northampton Road and Portage Trail. That was Northampton Township back then, now it's part of Cuyahoga Falls. Right. So the they release the car to the Beard family and they drive it home, but at some point a sheriff comes back to look over the car and they find a bullet hole in the passenger side of the windshield. Uh, there's no trace of blood inside, and Police say it appeared the bullet may have been shot from the back seat, uh, but inside the car was Ricky's wallet. It was tucked behind the visor. There was a $5 bill on the floor. Mary's hairbrush was in the car. And an odd little feature, there was a blanket that was always in the back seat, and this blanket was now folded up and placed in the trunk. I
4: think their bag of Doritos was in the car, too. Okay. She had a bag of Doritos. Yes, I think
2: there was For the movies? A bag of Doritos. The, the yeah. night
4: when they went out. I was two doors down from my house sitting standing on the front steps of the porch of Mr. and Mrs. Cook's house, and um, one of her coworkers dropped her off in front of our house, and we hollered over to her. She walked over, and she leaned against this railing, and I was leaning against this railing, and we were looking at each other talking. I reached for the chips, and she yanked them back. That's normal. Yeah. So she wouldn't let me have any. A couple minutes later, Ricky pulls up. She went home, changed her clothes. I watched her walk out the front door in the car as they drove by I yelled out hey Rick or no I says, hey redneck that's why I always called him a redneck yeah. and he just smiled looked up at me and smiled and they just drove on that was the last time I see him
3: and was this he was driving her to work not to the no. movies she, oh, they were going no, to the movies then he
4: picked her up at, uh, after work okay to go to the movies
3: okay so they were off to the movies
4: at that point right okay and yeah, she uh, wow. we talked for and people tried to tell me over the years that she ran away I said no she did not run away if she was planning
0: on running away, she'd have given me that bag of chips. <laughs> I kid you not. That's yeah. probably true. Yeah. Uh, so it's safe to say that you're probably the last one of the friends and family who've seen them? I was the last one to see them drive down the street. My mom and dad was in the house.
4: They watched her walk out the door, and then I seen them drive down the street. That was the last time I seen them.
3: Well, we know back at the site where the car was found, um, police found several shells littering the ground in the area, but they said it was an area that was favored by hunters, and that proved not to be too helpful. Um, the closest resident to that site where the car was found, a Paul Herbrook, said he heard a car door slam around 2 a.m., and he didn't think much of it because there's a bar nearby. So that weekend, the police, they bring in bloodhounds, The Ohio National Guard sends in a helicopter to join the search and volunteers turn out to search the grounds. The bloodhound owner said it was his opinion that the couple was not in the car while it was at the location where it was found, suggesting strongly that someone else had driven the car there to abandon it. And because the car had a bullet hole in it by then, detectives later would conclude it likely that whatever happened to Ricky and Mary took place between midnight and 2 a.m. So more than a month later, police are desperate for any help. They even turned to psychics. In October, there was a story in the Akron Beacon Journal describing a scene where two detectives are driving a pair of psychics around. They lead the police to abandoned buildings. They yelled stop at a bridge and at some railroad tracks. But the search turned up nothing. And police acknowledged at that time they had taken advice from 10 different psychics they even put in a call to Creskin, who was a famous magician who had recently performed at Akron's E.J. Thomas Hall. Then in November, the Leonard family hires a private investigator, William Deer of Texas. And Deer has gained some, some fame because he and a stable of investigators had earned some renown because they found a missing 16-year-old computer whiz named James Dallas Egbert. He was a Dayton resident attending Michigan State and that case became nationally famous because Deer had theorized that Egbert's disappearance had something to do with him playing the game Dungeons and Dragons. And if you grew up in that area, you'll probably remember your parents saying, you can't play Dungeons and Dragons, it's a dangerous game. Um, so Deer comes with, with quite a reputation when he comes to town. And adding him to it, Akron police are now calling this the most intensive investigation of a missing persons case in the history of their department. So Luann, at this point, how much is your family believing that Ricky and Mary could be alive, as opposed to have met with foul play?
2: Um, We have a lot of different theories about it. Um, One was, you know, maybe it was a teen pregnancy and they were afraid to tell their Catholic parents and they ran away. just anything. And my dad actually reported my brother because at that time, when if you were 19, you had to apply, sign up for the Secret ser- Selective Service um, for the draft. You had to sign up for the draft. So my dad reported him as a draft dodger. My dad reported him as a tax evader. Just anything to get to more To get more departments involved.
3: Oh, clever. Yeah, that is a good idea.
2: Yeah.
4: Clever. Yeah. I never heard that.
2: Okay. Well, um, how good it did, but it wasn't. They did, you know. No one. Yeah. I mean, they didn't look, but um, yeah. So the the thing was, when it came to Christmas of '79, Rick loved Christmas. I remember sitting on Christmas Eve with the family gathered and thinking, "Oh, he's going to come in the door. He he would not miss Christmas. He, he would not miss Christmas. It was his favorite holiday." He went all out. He, he would have bought everybody presents. In fact, I have a crock pot that he bought me the last Christmas he was alive because he worked at, what, what's that store, Jewel Mart? Anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I still have that crock pot he bought me in 1978. Um, so we just felt he's going to come home. this Christmas. So I think after Christmas was over, we really were disappointed that he didn't show up. And
3: was that kind of a line in the sand for you, like, if he didn't make it home for Christmas, he's not coming I home? I think,
2: yeah, because I think he would have tried. I, I think he would have tried, but he was really very family-oriented. Um, I mean, he was a typical 19-year-old, so, yes, yeah, sometimes he was a hard-ass, sure. acting like a hard-ass, but I really don't think he was. Um, yeah, he, would, he just wouldn't have abandoned the family, I don't think.
3: Jerry, how about your family? At this point... Um, Are you thinking they're alive?
4: I really can't speak for anybody else. Myself, I could never picture her face again in my head. And I think deep down I knew she was gone. I just didn't feel, I mean, with what I knew, as close as I was to her, um, if she was able to contact us, and you mentioned about possibly a teenage pregnancy my mom said that that couldn't be happened w- wasn't did not was not the reason because her sheets were soiled so the, like the day oh. before oh okay so we knew that that wasn't a problem oh, okay. we knew okay. that that didn't happen okay. so <clears throat> I guess I, personally I didn't never, I never never believe she was still alive either okay. one. but we had no nothing to go by it was just How about your parents?
3: Were they... Now, they were keeping her bedroom just the way it was. Was that just a sentimentality, or was there really a whole belief on their part that she may just walk in one day and and take her bedroom back?
4: I... Well, I said I couldn't speak on anybody else's behalf, but I think my mom and dad knew that she was gone.
1: Yeah.
4: I believe. (laughs) Um, None of us could believe that she would just take off. Something we knew something bad happened. Okay. It wasn't a runaway. Uh, it, it's just a gut feeling you have when you know somebody that well.
3: She had a calendar in her room and you said that that kind of that calendar was on the date that she went missing. Mm-hmm. That's something that always stuck with you. That yeah. calendar just sitting a, there.
4: It was a little black set up on yeah. her desk and the little knobs on it where you put a little white circle on the day in the month. And it, I still can see that calendar. I don't know whatever happened to it. I don't know if any of my siblings has it or not, but um, I, I can, I'll, that's why I can never forget the date, uh, August
3: 24th. Yeah, you know, I, I keep thinking of how they found a little money and Ricky's wallet in the car, and, and I'm thinking even just that little bit as an outsider... As a family, I might be clinging to hope, but as soon as I find out wallets and monies are are left in a car, as an outsider, I'm thinking game over, and you know, that had to be hard to to know that that had happened.
4: Well, I mean, when when they first disappeared, we had so many people at the house, and we we were on our CBs, my brother had a base station in the house, and we were on the CB all the time talking to people, and we kept getting people saying, I see this couple standing over here, And they're dressed like this, and they they described them. And so we would take off. Well, I wasn't driving, but we'd jump in cars and take off. My brother would call the police. They would jump in the car, the detectives, and everybody would go to that intersection, nothing. And we had all kinds of uh, stuff like that going on. Did you
3: do that more than once? Oh, yeah.
4: Wow. I didn't go out running. Sure. I I was only 14. You were still 14. My (laughs) mom was holding on to me. Wow. Um, But I do remember one night, uh, there was somebody that we knew was on the CB giving us false information, and a bunch of us jumped in the pickup trucks, and went looking for this guy. <sighs> we had no idea where, this, where to find this guy, but we were looking for him, and it was like it was it was scary. What a cruel thing! It to, was scary. We to, had a lot of people calling and,
2: That happens a call. lot. Our phone, our your phone was probably tapped too. Our phone was tapped at our house, my parents' house. Um, and I remember one time, probably in nineteen eighty, I didn't live at home anymore, but I was really sick and I had I had laryngitis and I called I called to ask my dad if he would take me to the doctor. <laughs> and he kept going, Who is this? Who is this? I'm like, It's me, it's me. Oh. But they were so anytime someone strange would call the house yeah you know this is many years before caller id or answering Why? machines or anything and um i'm like i then i start thinking oh my god he thinks it's rick or somebody you know mm. but oh, it was just me with laryngitis just laryngitis yeah
4: wow. we had one case where we had a somebody said they wouldn't want to meet my dad down at gorge park and so the police put a bulletproof vest on <laughs>
3: On your dad?
4: Did they show up? Nobody showed up. It was just another prank. Just another prank. But but he went down there. My dad was not going to sit at home and let someone else do it. He went down there. He was going to follow every lead.
2: Well, that's it. That's why we're sitting here today. We're sitting here 40 years later because we want some resolution of this. Um, You know, all of our parents are deceased now. Um, I'm sure they've been reunited with their loved ones, but we want, we want to know what happened, and any opportunity we have to get it out there, we're gonna do that. Mm-hmm.
3: So um, in February of 1980, and this kind of attests to the roller coaster that your families must have been on, this is about a half year after they've disappeared. Jim Grace, he's one of the private investigators uh, with William Deere's agency, announces he's got a reliable source saying Ricky and Mary are alive and living out of state. That's a story that makes a small headline in the newspaper saying they're alive. Uh, did you guys remember that at all? No. I
4: don't recall it Just at all.
3: probably one more in the roller coaster wow. of the ups and downs. that's it. Yeah. They probably all run together after and
0: a that, while. That was definitely a headline.
3: That was a headline. Yeah. That,
0: I'd have to read there's it. There's a story. If I remember any of it, I, I'd have to read it.
3: Well, and then there was another strange announcement from Deere's agency. He said that his investigation had determined that Ricky's car was at the farm at least one hour before Ricky and Mary were seen on Mary's porch, putting the car at the place where it was found at 10.10 10 p.m., and that Ricky and Mary were at the Ascot Drive-In
2: while their car was at the farm.
3: That, that didn't seem to make any to sense. Make any though, sense. No,
2: and there were people who were at the movies with them who... Mm-hmm. Who knew? Who we saw them leave yeah. the movies, yeah.
3: Did this throw a wrench at all into the neighbor's account? Was there some concern that maybe the, the neighbor wasn't correct?
4: We always said that there was. he may have been thinking about another night. Could have been the night before. They were out there all the time. So he could have been mixing up that night with another night. We never have ever verified it.
3: Be because if he was right, and this is what is really chilling about this case, if he was right, it means those kids made it home. I don't think they did. You know, if they were on the porch after 11, they were home. And the idea that they would not be there, you know, by the stroke of midnight is is a if hard... If I remember
4: correctly, my brother said he, I think he said he heard us. Of- it sounded like possibly a gunshot outside the window, outside our house but he's not even I don't even think he was even positive about that because was one of those nights that he was headed head by the window trying to stay cool yeah. but no, nothing's ever been verified that they ever made it back to the house that night.
3: Well, that brings us up to uh, May of 1980, and the police make an unusual request. They want the public to come out and help search the banks of the Little Cuyahoga River. They said they received info from a reliable source that Ricky and Mary's bodies had been dumped in the woods next to the river. Police said their source didn't have firsthand knowledge but had overheard a conversation that led him to believe that was the case. So on a Saturday in May, 150 people show up. But even for that number, it's a needle in the haystack. They're out there for eight hours, and they can only cover a fraction of the area that this tip could have been describing. Did either of your families participate in that that day?
4: We were all there. My mom wasn't. I don't remember if my dad was, but I remember going. I remember my mom trying to stop me because I was sick, and I said, nothing's going to stop me, and
2: I went. Yeah, I remember that, too. I I did not go. I never went on any of the searches, um, mostly because I didn't want to find anything. But some of my brothers did go, and other relatives went.
4: I remember them getting on the walkie-talkies and saying that they found some bones, and we waited, and then they, uh, or there were animal bones, but that's only thing. And to
3: know now that... They were that close, so the tip seems like it was reliable. That's
4: what we figured. We figured so who, it was reliable, was the, who was
3: the I, conversation I mean, from? I
4: don't know. I, that I can't Does
3: the, Did the police relay these kinds of details to you as a family, even to say don't tell anybody? But no, everybody's shaking recall. their head. So then the one-year anniversary of their disappearance comes, and an Akron police detective tells a reporter, I think they're still alive. So, again, that torture, oh, we think they're dead, we're searching the banks. Oh, you know what, I think we're alive. You've got to live with this for the next five years. Um, I can't even imagine. It just sounds like torture. I, I can't imagine. Well, yeah. and
2: I would get people who I didn't even know would come up to me and say, oh, yeah, I heard that your brother was sighted in Mexico or Puerto Rico or something. and never got nothing like that. And um, I... I I never knew how to respond because first of all the person didn't even know me who was saying this, and we actually had um, we had posters made and I drove around with posters on my car for many months, maybe even years uh, with Rick and Mary's picture on it. So when I would park my car at work, people would see it, and I think anytime I parked my car somewhere, people would say would go ah, oh, you know maybe we can. Maybe we know something, but nobody ever knew anything credible.
3: It didn't matter what the lead was. Each and everyone had to be checked out. Was a drug gang responsible? A cult? Did the young lovers run away? Were they kidnapped? For 2,058 days, the Beard and Leonard families had to listen to every speculation. Some brought new hope, only to have it crushed. They would hear of new possibilities, then watch them be dismissed one by one. For 2,058 days, they had to wake up every morning wondering where their loved ones were, until day 2,059, when they didn't have to wonder any longer. Next on Ohio Mysteries.
4: And the corner showed up. And says we verified it. It is Mary.
3: That episode is available right now. Just look on your favorite podcast app for Episode 11, Beard and Leonard, Part 2, or find the link on our website, ohiomysteries.com.
0: And be sure to check out our website for photos news clippings, and more on the case of Ricky Baird and Mary Leonard. If you like our podcast, help us spread the word. We are on Facebook and Twitter. It would be so grateful if you would like, follow, share, or retweet us to your friends and family. And while you're at it, leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes and on our Facebook page. By the way, if you're listening to us on a podcast app, Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that every new episode is saved and waiting just for you.
3: And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist, Ryan Humbert. Ryan is a prolific singer-songwriter well-known in the Akron-Canton area. He'll be having his annual Ryan Humbert Holiday Extravaganza at the Akron Civic Theater on December 11, 12, and 13. It's a benefit for Cleveland Clinic Akron General's Muffins for Mammograms program. And Ryan will be joined by his longtime backup singer, Emily Bates, and a 12-piece band. You can sample Ryan's many original songs on his website, ryanhumbert.com. And be sure to follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
0: You can find links to all of our featured music on our website under the Featured Music link. And if you're an Ohio musician creating original music, send us an email and tell us about yourself. Maybe we'll feature you, too. For now... We're going to leave you with Ryan's song The Chain You heard a piece of it at the very beginning of the podcast This was recorded in Nashville In 2008 For Ryan's Old Souls New Shoes album And features a member of the Nashville Opera On the soprano vocal Enjoy And we'll see you right back here For part 2 of Baird and Leonard